0: New York City is known for its skyscrapers and subways, but the Big Apple is also synonymous with food. There's certainly no shortage of places to eat here. Whatever you're in the mood for, you're bound to find a restaurant or street vendor that serves it. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. A new book called Castropolis explores the history and culture of food in New York City. With us this morning to talk about it are the editors, Annie Hauck-Lawson and Jonathan Deutsch. Hello to both of you. Hi. Good morning. Also with us in studio this morning is one of the book's contributors, Annie Raquel Lanzalato. Annie, welcome. Hey, thanks, Annie Lawson, I want to start with you because you've coined a phrase that's really the driving force behind this book, and that is food voice. What do you mean by that?
1: Food is so filled with meaning and symbolism that it actually functions as a channel of communication for people. They can say things, express themselves, and their identities through food. That's how uh, together those two words work.
0: Tell me about your food voice.
1: From birth and very much family uh, fostered and driven, we have been committed to the joy and privilege and work of growing, gathering, foraging for food, preparing it and eating it together. And just having our hands on sources of food or being close to people that provide food enhances its value to us, and so that's how we practice it.
0: I want to talk to you more about your upbringing in Brooklyn because you just said something that was very interesting to me. You foraged for food growing up in Brooklyn. We'll talk more about that, but let's check in with Jonathan Deutsch. Jonathan, what would you say your food voice is?
2: My food voice is one of barbecue and meat and excitement around the kitchen. My background is as a chef, and I came into writing um, through my teaching. I started as a, a chef and then a cooking teacher and now have gotten more into the writing of food and, and study of food.
0: Annie Lanzolato, I have one question for you, and that is, cosa manja oggi?
2: Uh,
3: questa mattina io ho mangiato oatmeal with uh, plenty of la frutta. And for lunch, Annie Halk just gave me a basket of tripe. See, Annie's bringing back the ancestors. So sometimes you have to taste the foods of the ancestors just so your blood could come rushing back through the ages. Hey, cosa Oje oggi a te, George?
0: Me? I had a bowl of cereal. <laughs> all right, all right. That, though, was the question that you were asked throughout your lifetime by your grandmother.
3: That's true. That's true. It was a daily question. My grandmother's name was Rosa Petruzzelli, born Marsico. And instead of saying, hi, how are you? That's what she'd say, cosa Oji. And she wanted a serious answer. She really wanted an answer. It was never a joke. She really wanted to know if you were eating right, because that was symbolic of if you were treating yourself towards health and life, or if you were killing yourself and abusing yourself. So she really wanted to know, did you take time to eat right?
0: Your grandmother has since passed on. Do you seek out the foods of your childhood to keep the relationship with your grandmother alive?
3: Absolutely. the, the fire never goes out, you know, you got to keep oxygen on the embers. Just this morning, my mother said to me, we have to make grandma's cookies. And, you know, what she means by that is we have to be with grandma for the holidays. So we have to go buy the, the flour and et cetera, et cetera. And then we have to try to make our hands move on the cutting board the way her hands moved with the dough. And so it's kind of like saying we have to go to the cemetery or we have to go to church to light a candle her saying we have to make grandma's cookies. It's that kind of communion and transmogrification. We have to go into the kitchen instead of the church or the cemetery, and we have to get out the dough, and we have to let our hands do the honoring of the ancestors.
0: It's so funny, because as you're saying that, I am thinking about my grandmother's kitchen. Annie, it's amazing how food really connects us to our families, to our ancestors.
1: And the more that children are exposed to this, the more they will bring this into their the rest of their lives and then pass it on to their children.
0: Jonathan, that's really a running theme throughout this book, How Food Connects Families. There is another story in the book, a Filipino man from Manhattan who goes to Brooklyn to find foods that fill the void created by his grandmother's loss.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, New York is a city of immigrants. It's a city of stories. And it's a city where food from all over the world converges and morphs and intermingles. We had a lot of questions when we were putting this book together from colleagues and and reviewers, kind of pushing us and saying, sure, you could do this about New York, but couldn't you do this about anywhere? Couldn't you do this about London or Philadelphia or Ames, Iowa? And the question is, yes, everywhere there are food voices, there are stories, there are families, there are traditions. Everyone's life could be a book or, or multiple volumes, In itself with in terms of their relationship to food but there is something special about New York that we hope we capture
0: the diversity here clearly is amazing and it just keeps on coming with the new immigrants who are coming over
2: right there's a great chapter in the book by Damien Mosley about Harlem and about the changing faces of Harlem and and the traditions and how that's been both preserved and in jeopardy and and you really see that with every neighborhood to some extent and that's kind of the theme is that we we hope to have presented a dynamic city, a changing city, a book that's a collection that's not overly nostalgic but does honor the history of the city as well.
1: One of the pieces that comes to mind is Cara da Silva's work on Fusion City, how these people from all over the world come to New York and New York becomes their home. And they contribute their flavors, and the intermingling of the flavors creates new combinations. And for some of the uh, children of immigrants, these combinations become what's natural to them. They grow up on it. So this fusion cuisine is their everyday fare.
0: Besides food voice, I learned another new phrase in your book, and that was, Indo-Pak-Bangla.
1: That's right. Come down Coney Island Avenue in Brooklyn and you will uh, have Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Indian food stores, little grocery stores with halal butcher uh, stands in the back. You'll have access to incredible combinations of flavors there.
2: That's a great example of the fusion that takes place in New York where people who might not have talked to one another in terms of the communities in their homelands now are really connected by food, that someone from Pakistan may say, well, I can't find exactly what I want from my culture, but there's something from Bangladeshi culture that's very similar, and there's this interchange um, where you have new food traditions generating.
0: One unique combination that I've found in New York City is Mm Cuban-Chinese.
1: There were many Chinese people in Cuba years ago, decades ago, when... There was an exodus off the island. Uh, Many of them came here and started cooking in their combinations of foods.
2: Chinese culture has a great food culture and a great restaurant culture. And one of the amazing things about Chinese food is we think of Chinese-American food, but really in in nearly every country of the world, and I I believe every continent except Antarctica, there's a Chinese restaurant or multiple Chinese restaurants. And that's something um, Harley Spiller Uh, discusses in his chapter uh, about Chinese food in New York.
0: It's also interesting, a lot of people think that folks who come here, new immigrants who come here, want to maintain the tastes of their homelands, and they're not going to venture outside. And there is a great story in the book about an Indian woman who loves dim sum. So many people are surprised that she actually loves dim sum. It's part of her weekly tradition. If she doesn't have it on the weekend, then something's wrong.
1: Again, the food voice comes into play here that new immigrants can express their changing in various identities. For example, one new immigrant teenage uh, young man that I worked with in doing research came to this country from Poland, and as soon as he got to lunchtime with his high school friends, went completely to takeout. When I asked what his favorite foods were, he said hamburgers, french fries, Chinese takeout, Um, Japanese food, this was his food voice expressing his identity as an American teenage boy.
3: My grandmother, Grandma Rose in the Bronx, was the first to bring tofu to the family table, and she called it the Chinese mozzarella, but that was her way to bring it, right? She didn't know she bought it, and that was was her way to understand it.
1: She anchored it in her traditional foods and brought it new to the family.
3: Okay, thanks. And, And as a New Yorker, she always wanted something new. New being the operative word. She wanted new tastes. She wanted it new. So for her, the Chinese mozzarella, the tofu was new. And she brought it home.
2: There's an interesting sort of dichotomy between some New Yorkers are looking for authenticity, especially with regard to what we would call ethnic food. And many New Yorkers are looking for, uh, especially immigrants, are looking for more convenient or more reliable ways of making things that they're bringing from their home. So Kara De Silva, in her chapter on fusion cooking, fusion food, has great examples of um, Velveeta being the key ingredient in a pierogi or uh, Aunt Jemima, self-rising flour being the secret to a great injera that wasn't made uh, that way in Ethiopia, for example, but sort of takes on a new life.
0: Talking about authenticity, Annie Lazzalotto, how important is that to you when you seek out Italian cuisine?
3: Authenticity is an interesting word. The book opens with Carrie the Silva telling this kind of famous Smithsonian story where they went down to D.C. to make bagels for the, uh, the festival. What was the festival called?
1: The uh, Folk Smithsonian Folklife Folk life yeah.
3: Festival. And so soon we ran out of New York water, and the bagel makers, what was it, the Ross family? Right, Steve Ross. They, they had water helicoptered in. Uh, you know, if you want to fill in a few details here. But the bottom line is, so if you're searching for the authentic bagel in another site, well, is it authentic without the water? The answer was no. They had it helicoptered in from New York. So if you search for authenticity, say you want to get a pastry, and then you're, you're in the Bronx. So you say, let's take limoncello. It's an aperitif or it's an after-dinner drink. So yes, I know. S-
0: Danny DeVito made that quite popular. Okay. <laughs> so they'll
3: say, well, this is imported. It's authentic. They'll, so, so say they say it's from Rome. So, so say you go to Rome and you say, I want limoncello. They say, oh, well, this is from Monopoly. You know, these lemons are from uh, the Almalfi Coast. Then if you go down to Naples, they'll say, well, this is imported from Sicily. This is the lemons. from. And so when does authenticity end with ingredients? It can't be authentic. In a sense, you have to be where you are. Or what do you do? Can you eat a bagel in D.C.? Not according to these guys. <laughs> Not without the water. Not without the New York. Yeah, what is it about so, the water?
0: Because I have a friend who moved to D.C., and he said, you know, I wish I could get a good slice of pizza, but I cannot. Well, and he blames the water.
3: When do you stop calling pizza, pizza? How many degrees does it have to—so, in other words, wh- when does it trans? you know, morph into something else.
0: All eyes on you, Annie.
3: (laughs) Okay,
1: well, I want to go back to the water question um, because yesterday I was speaking to an English writing class at Brooklyn College about gastropolis, and I asked them that question, when you leave New York, what are the foods that are difficult for you to get? And they all said unanimously bagels and pizza and also um, New York pickles. That was what prompted this whole scene down on the mall in Washington, D.C. Herman Vargas from Russ and Daughters wanted to do a demonstration of New York pickles. So he asked to borrow some of Steve Ross's 36 gallons of water that Steve brought down to boil his bagels in. And so when D.E.P. heard this, they, you know, sent lots of New York water down so we would be in good supply. But... The water in New York is a special gift. Um, Prior to the construction of the aqueduct system and bringing the water down from reservoirs upstate, water was really a problem throughout greater New York, even though it wasn't a city yet. Certain areas were identified as having bad water or good water. Uh, There were very good springs in Bushwick that fueled in the 1800s dairying, and the distilling industry. So these these springs had a good reputation. But then there were other areas where the water was bad and harbored a lot of bacteria and bad tasting. So this New York water that we get when we turn on our taps free and that we've got sitting right here on the table feeds us and drives our city. It hydrates us with A very special quality, and that's infused into the foods that use it. And we
3: thank the Sandhog Union and all the Mm. city tunnel workers sure, for the the, the lives lost in that effort. Mm. We really do. Every time we turn on the tap, we really do. Those ancestors
1: are honored when we turn on the tap. It's a special thing.
0: It's always funny to me when I go outside of New York, say to a state like Florida, and I see a place called Brooklyn Bagels. And I go in and I say, this is not a Brooklyn bagel.
1: No. No, I, we, we make a point of stopping in to these places as well to just try, and it's it's not a New York bagel. Yeah.
2: Don't bother. Have some blackened grouper when you're in Florida and have your bagels here.
1: There
0: you go. Yeah. Choose your food wisely and where you are. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning we're talking about the history and culture of food in New York City with Annie Hauck Lawson and Jonathan Deutsch. They're the editors of a new book called Gastropolis. Also with us is one of the book's contributors, Annie Rockelli Lanzalato. Annie is now prepared to read from her essay entitled "Cosa Manja Oji. Annie? This takes place in La Focaccia, which was a
3: great uh, place to eat on, First Avenue, just below 8th Street. And uh, hello to Ralph, I think he's retired in Florida somewhere. Maybe it was the way I said A, hey, rather than the content of my question. So why is the broccoli rob two bucks more than spinach and scottol? The son-in-law looked down over my glass of swaying water and basket of bread with cold, gold, foil-wrapped butter squares, and dished me the fact as if he were reading the number of soldiers killed in combat that day. It's a labor-intensive vegetable. I stuck a hunk of the soft bread in my mouth. I learned over the years to choose when to shut up instead of mouthing off, especially to men. The bread was doughy and took up the whole inside of my mouth, kneading all the words that were on their way, ready to fly out of it back into the dough. I breathed through my nose, kept chewing, and he walked to the back of the table nearest the kitchen. He picked up his short knife. I swallowed, thinking of Grandma Rose cutting crosses in the bottom of broccoli rob stems. He resumed his seat, cleaning string beans. This was the most conversation I got out of that waiter in the next 20 years of eating at La Focaccia. I'd eat there efficiently, stand up to meet the owner at the cash register, and then leave. Facing First Avenue, better equipped to handle whatever situation New York City would toss me that day. I made my way up to D. Roberti's for an espresso and a chote to top off the meal. Sated, readied, I'd call Grandma from the corner payphone, TA27487, and she'd deliver her fastball. Hey, Grandma, it's Annie! Annie! Then the reinforcement of the Italian greeting with the Southern Bronx Italian lilt, "Gumasta, bene," I would sing proudly into the phone since I was two. "Bene, brava," she would say, and I would repeat her inquiry. "Gumasta, menza menza, no complainer, honey. I'm a cookin' a string of beans and a lamb a chop." Then the zing, Cosa mangio oggi? Boom. Never in English. Foods we confessed in Italian. It was a sacred discussion. Scarola aglio olio. Escaro with garlic and oil. Brava, should have to say. Brava, smart girl. Escaro aced her test every time. Un poco de vino eh, That's okay. Hey, Grandma, I'm thinking of when I could get up to see you. That's okay, honey. Stay where you are. Make of the money. Make of the money. But I want to visit you, Grandma. Hey, back in the fort, back in the fort. Stay tranquilo. Make it the money.
0: Well, you made Grandma proud, though, with that meal.
3: Yeah, and it took me a long time to find a place running around town in between jobs where I could eat some bitter greens, some good garlic, and, and a good crusty bread. That wasn't everywhere.
0: You write in the book that to learn to love to eat bitter greens is like learning another language.
3: It's true because when I was a kid, you know, we'd eat American food and grandma would go pick Chikaria out wherever she was, the highways, the baseball fields. And it stunk when she cooked it or if she cooked tripe. I mean, I would run out of the house. I'd open up all the windows. And then it took me time that this was medicine. She
1: never took medicine. She lived 100 and a half years. This was medicine. The first time I ate dandelion greens, I called them Penance Vegetable because <laughs> they were so bitter. And now I love them so much that actually my greengrocer taught me a way to make them even more bitter in the way that you cook them. How? After you saute with garlic and olive oil and the, the steam burns off, evaporates... You keep it on the flame to kind of dry the vegetable. Really? And it, because it loses more water, it concentrates and intensifies the flavor. It's good. Broccoli rubbed that way. Mm.
0: Your family would forage for dandelions in Prospect Park, am I right?
1: Anywhere that we could find them. My mother would, uh, if she saw a good clump of dandelion greens, she would wedge it up, and put it into a bag, as long as it was from a place. uh, She wouldn't take it like from tree pits where a dog may have peed. But if it looked like it was from a clean source, wherever it was, she would pick it up. She had a very sharp eye for seeing if there was food potential in her surroundings. We pass by along the Prospect Expressway, she'll spot a pear tree, and we'll we'll watch the pears, and then she'll figure out a way how she can send us down the hill along the wall by the expressway to go pick up pears that have dropped. Or she knows that there are apple trees in different parts of Brooklyn, and if it's a windy September day, like during hurricane season, she'll tell me the next morning, go by that corner. And pick up the apples on the ground. She won't pick from the tree because the apple tree is in somebody's front yard. But if it's on the ground in the sidewalk, she feels that we're entitled to pick up for her. (laughs) (laughs) We go out on errands and she says, oh, swing around by that corner. Let's see if there are any apples. And I'm telling you, she'll have me pick ones that are half bruised out of the gutter. And with her little paring knife, with her gnarled, arthritis, knobby, 85-year-old hands, she will pare off what has to go into compost and use somehow what's still good. The next day she'll say, you want some apple cake? And send me home with the chunk for the family.
0: Now, this isn't necessarily typical behavior for a New Yorker. Is your mother native to the U.S., or did she take these behaviors from her homeland?
1: She was born and raised on a farm in Poland uh, with her extended family, where they grew uh, and preserved very much of what they ate. Now, you say that this is not normal behavior for New Yorkers, but... I didn't say normal. I said typical. I just want to clarify. <laughs> thank, you, thank you very much, but I want to say that this is typical behavior for us Hauk kids and my kids and my brother's kids sort of mostly go along with it.
0: You also spend a lot of time on the water collecting food.
1: If we're not swimming in it, we're fishing for it or digging for clams and steamers. And um, even one time, a little I was walking along the beach, one of my favorite places to be, and a short lobster washed up in the waves, right by my feet. And that I considered a gift from the heavens. So I carried this little lobster home. It's not a lobster that a lobster person would be able to bring to market because it was a short. But I brought that baby home, my mother cooked it, and she made it into a miracle of the loaves and fishes by the onions and peppers and lemon and mayonnaise all of us got some of the lobster salad.
0: Jonathan, let me ask you, what culinary tradition uncovered in this book surprised you most?
2: In this book, we really tried to reflect the diversity of the city. And there's really no way to be representative. Every New Yorker has a story. Every New Yorker's story is one that's compelling and and should be heard. What strikes me about this book, and I, I could say it with humility because it's not all my writing. Very little of it is my writing. That the stories are great, they're compelling, and some of the writers are among the best food writers anywhere and we're we're really fortunate to have them in New York. And what really stays with me is the really broad picture that the essays taken together paint from, from hungry New Yorkers and uh, the irony of uh, the emergency food system that Jan Poppendieck and J.C. Dwyer explore where Um, A lot of the facilities are only open during daytime hours when people could be working but need to be getting their emergency food, to um, Fabio Parasicali's work on avant-garde chefs or or celebrity chefs, really um, extending the notion of what food could be with some uh, experimental food, experimental cooking, and also some of the themes that run through from early European settlement in the land that is now New York, um, and the exchanges uh, between the Native American uh, Lenape Indians that Ann Mendelssohn writes about and the early European settlers through gentrification today. uh, We're seeing some of the same themes, some of the same processes in place.
0: Let's talk about street vendors, Jonathan. What can you tell us about their contributions to the city's culinary landscape?
2: I think a lot of our food and the food that people associate with New York really comes from a street tradition, and Jennifer Berg uh, details this in her chapter about iconic foods of New York City. If you ask someone, a New Yorker or not, what they think of when they think of of New York food, they're not going to say uh, restaurant Danielle. They're not going to say um, a lot of the products that are native to the region, like oysters or lobster. They're going to say bagels knishes, pizza, hot dogs, those street foods and the street culture has really um, overtaken our conception of what New York food is. It's assumed a lot of meaning. You know, none of these foods have any um, indigenous connection. You know, the hot dog comes from Europe, um, was a German delicatessen food that became a a Jewish uh, street food. You know, that's what people think of, and, and I think it's great.
0: The book talks about how the Great Depression impacted the livelihoods of the city street vendors. Clearly now we're in another economic crisis. How are they doing?
3: I joke and I say my mother has frittata agoraphobia, which means that she carries food a frittata wherever she goes. And you see Annie here today in her pocketbook has all kinds of food. I think we have to start carrying food. I think street vendors, I'm hoping that people are going to buy their home-cooked foods because it's, you know, you could get phenomenal chicken, food, you know, authentic cuisine on the street. And streetvendors.org has lists of vendors where they are, and the award-winning vendors in, in Queens and the boroughs, and I'm hoping they're going to
0: get more business. There is one essay in the book that talks about talks about how fine dining is sort of like Teflon here in New York City. Regardless of the economic climate, <coughs> these places do well for some reason.
2: In a lot of cities, Fine dining is kind of a leading indicator of what's happening with the economy because it's the first thing people cut. Uh, it's not so much true in New York, and I think one of the main reasons for that is we have about 44 million visitors a year from all over the world, and, and many of them look at fine dining as part of their tourism experience and their entertainment. So, you know, this year, for example, it's a, a tough year economically. But the euro is fairly strong and the yen is fairly strong and restaurants are seeing, you know, decent years overall, you know, to generalize.
0: Gastropolis is published by Columbia University Press and on their website, they have listed a bunch of questions to test your knowledge of New York City food. So before we go, I want to run through a couple of these questions because they're actually quite fun. In the late 1700s, this food was one of the most popular things to eat in the city. It was one of the few foods consumed by both the upper and lower classes, and most establishments sold all you could eat for six cents. The answer is? Oysters. Oysters.
1: Yep. Well, New York used to be the oyster capital of the United States. We had, after uh, natural oysters were over-harvested. And some of those oysters had shells up to a foot long. You can go to Staten Island Historical Society and see one of those really long oyster shells from the local waters. But oyster farming took off all around the, um, the water borders of New York City, Staten Island, Brooklyn, um, Queens. And they were harvested and then brought by boat to oyster markets that were along the Manhattan border. And these oyster markets, were actu- part of them were actually two-story boats where the oysters could be offloaded from the fishing boats onto the oyster barges, which were market boats.
0: And finally, the iconic New York drink, the egg cream, was popularized by which immigrant culture?
1: Lower East Side Jews.
0: The book is Gastropolis. It's out now from Columbia University Press. I want to thank the editors. Annie Hauck-Lawson, thank you. Pleasure. Jonathan Deutsch, thank you. Thank you. And one of the contributors, Annie Racheli Lanzalato. Thank you so much for coming in.
3: Grazie, grazie, George.
0: And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producer McCall Neria. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you in 2009. Happy New Year.